You are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, a show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and opening bottles with Stormbreaker. This is season two, episode one, Grief in Avengers Endgame. I'm Carrie Combs, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Adam Thomas. Hey, Adam. Hey, Carrie. It's season two. We've been renewed for a second season. I mean, what is what goes into being renewed? We just say we're going to do it. <laughs> you and, and me saying, let's do another season. Great. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm glad we, we have come zero, to that. zero corporate sponsorship. We're not taking any money from big donors. No, but I did get a sweet new mic, not donated. It was a lovely gift from my husband because he loves me. And hopefully my audio will be better this season. Yeah, so if if you are just joining us uh, for this new season of the podcast, then you might not want to go back and listen to season one because the audio quality is less than ideal. But the content's not too bad, I don't think. What was your favorite episode in season one? Princesses, 100%. You like the princess one? Oh my yeah, gosh. That, one that was, was a lot well, of fun. That was the most inspired blessing I think I ever wrote. And I might never <laughs> be able fabulous. to top it. It made me so happy. What about your you? Your whole career as a priest, you're never going <sighs> to say a better blessing. Here. That was season one, episode four. I, um, so. I, I really liked that one too. I also really liked the chosen one discussion. Yes. Um, that was our seventh episode of season one. So if you're just joining us, uh, new listeners for the podcast, we have a few. Um, then go back and listen to season one and we'll apologize for the uh, audio quality. Um, our equipment is better now and hopefully uh, our discussions will be as good or better as well. And we're also changing up the format a little bit this season. Instead of doing tropes or archetypes like last season, we're focusing in on one story, you know, movie or book or show episode, one idea per podcast episode. So it will be a little bit more focused, which hopefully will allow us to go for some good deep dives. So hopefully you will have read or seen what we're going to talk about. Um, it, they're obviously going to be spoilers for whatever we do, but Carrie and I decided what we're going to do for our episodes going forward is we won't talk about something that's fairly recent until that thing is either out on video or is streamable so that we assume that people listening will have had access to it. Yeah, give you ample time to catch up on things. And then after, what, maybe four to six months, the embargo's up, everything's free to talk about. Yeah, and we didn't do that in the first season. Our apologies. Yes, of course, we, we did talk about uh, Endgame a couple of times, even though it hadn't come out in Disney Plus yet. But we're still learning our way into how to do these podcasts. But we're going to talk about Endgame today. It's out on Disney Plus, so go watch it there or get it at your local library. Um, and uh, so, what's our scripture quote today, Carrie? Today's scripture quote is from the Gospel of John. Jesus said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. And our nerd quote comes from Avengers Endgame. Steve Rogers says during the support group, you did the hardest part. You took the jump. You didn't know where you were going to come down and that's it. That's those little brave baby steps we got to take to try and become whole again. Try to find purpose.
So when I was looking at the title for this first episode of season two, I thought, oh gosh, we're starting off with kind of a heavy topic. But it's appropriate, I think, because this was, in a way, the seed that has germinated into this podcast. Is that metaphor appropriate? Sure, sure. we'll go with it. Yeah, why not? Um, yeah. This, yeah, this podcast idea kind of started with you writing an article on your sabbatical about this movie. That's right. Yeah. I, when the first time I saw Avengers Endgame, I was struck in the first hour of the movie with how honest the portrayals of grief were. And I wasn't expecting something so deep from a Marvel movie. And then I had so much fun writing the article about Endgame that I thought, ah, I want to do this more. I, I really want to uh, have discussions about nerdy things and see how they affect our lives of faith and vice versa. And so that's when I asked Carrie to come on board this crazy journey of the podcast for nerdy Christians. And so it all has uh, to do with, with Avengers Endgame. And so we're going to do that topic today. Because you and I both do a lot of work with grief and our roles as pastors of communities and working in churches. We come across a lot of grief in people's lives. We are with people in some of the most holy and vulnerable moments, um, points of death, points of grieving a person's death, doing funerals. It's a huge part of the job. It, it really is. And one of the things that I learned pretty quickly in, in doing funerals was that I had to acknowledge all of the different ways that people grieve. So when I was talking, if I'm talking to somebody or talking to several people about what a funeral is going to look like, not putting my own understandings of what I might, how I might grieve onto other people but trying to honor the way that they're processing going through the, the devastating time that they're going through. And it comes out in so many different ways. And I, I've been thinking about expanding grief, thinking about it more than just grief around a person who has died, but grief around kind of anything, any kind of change you have, you have called it in our pre-podcast discussion, the loss of a future is why we grieve. And I think of it as anytime there's a change, there is a grief process. And I've been learning that in my church right now, as we go through a lot of changes, no one has died necessarily. There's been you know one or two funerals, but the community is changing and that causes anxiety and some grief around, you know, we're not who we thought we were and that's scary. And so I've been trying to do some work with them on grief, on acknowledging um, where we are, where we've been, and what's changed and what hurts, because I'm learning if you ignore those feelings, you try to push them down, you say you're okay, and we just move on, they don't go away. Um, especially, I know, I'm a born and bred New Englander, and we <laughs> think that we have to be stand up, stand up right and do everything and be okay all the time. And that's not always um, how we can be. And I think we also get that impression in faith. Sometimes we think if we believe in the resurrection, we shouldn't grieve someone who has died. Um, and I'm always remembering the words from our burial liturgy. We have a, a bit in our Book of Common Prayer concerning the service of burial. And it says that the joy that we have in resurrection does not make human grief unchristian. Um, it goes on to say, the very love we have for each other in Christ brings deep sorrow when we are parted by death. Jesus himself wept at the grave of his friend. Lazarus being one of two people identified as someone who Jesus loves in the gospel according to John. And so, of course, 
he would weep at the grave of his friend. Grief can be defined in many ways. Uh, you said earlier about uh, grieving being the loss of a future, the loss of the happening. Every, anytime we have some sort of change, uh, grief is also can be a synonym for love, a certain type of love, where love it's love tempered by loss. And what is the loss? The losses of uh, a loved one, the losses of, and again, when you lose a loved one, it's a loss of the future with that loved one, whatever that future might look like. You will have a future. It just won't be the one that you were expecting or the one that you desire. And that's when grief happens. For me, for example, I was very close to my maternal grandmother. And when she died, I was fine because I had grieved in a before she even died, I was, I was saying goodbye and processing all those emotions. But so by the time the funeral came around, I was just there to sing and be there and be supportive from my grandpa. Um, and I, I, what I like about this topic of grief and Avengers Endgame is seeing all the different ways people grieve because there can be so much judgment and uh, towards others, but also towards oneself, feeling like your grief is wrong, feeling like you're not doing it right. Like you're dishonoring the person you've lost or the experience you've had by the way you grieve. So why don't we jump into the, to the movie then? Um, again, the, the scope of this movie is massive and we have a, a perfect three act structure. So the first act is the, really the, the intro to the movie is everything up until them killing Thanos. And then the first act is the scene five years later, all of the, all of the scenes five years later as we're starting to build the team back up. And then the second act is the time heist, and the third act is the big fight at the end. And we're going to spend most of our time today talking about that first act. We'll, we'll touch on the other two as well because the, the theme of grief or really the stitching kind of the thread of grief weaves its way through all of this, all this entire movie. Uh, and so we, we, uh, we open that first act with that those words five years later and they come up very slowly oh it's so slow and painful oh my gosh what are they doing right that sequence the transition sequence with the five years later i just thought that what a apt description or visual representation of that slow plod of grief of just that we're they're taking those baby steps like steve says in our nerd quote towards wellness and wholeness again but it's slow it's plodding, it's exhausting. And that just seeing that sequence, that change happen, it's not five hours or five days or five weeks, it's five years. Yeah. And, and how many movies are going to actually do that? You know, and the, only, only a series that's been happening for 20 something movies can have a, a, a film have that five year break. And then you start filling in the blanks of what happened in these five years over the course of the next couple of scenes. And so we have Steve there leading a support group, which is exactly what you would expect Captain America to be doing. Of course he would. Um, and the, and they're, they're talking about, about getting on with their lives. It's been five years and we, we, and, and so what Steve is trying to establish is something that will often, it's kind of a buzzword in when we're talking about grief and it's the establishment of a new normal. And for Steve, he, he's trying to get other people to do that. And then of course, in the next scene with Natalie, uh, no, Natalie, Natalie, where'd that <laughs> come Nat? from? Who's Natalie? Nat, <laughs> Nat, Nat short, Natasha. <laughs> and in the next scene with Natasha, we realize that Steve can't get there himself. It's so interesting seeing that because at first, I when I saw the movie, I thought, oh, of course, he's finding his community. He's very civic-minded, 
Captain America. But he's, of course, in that role as a servant, as ministering to them by listening to them, by nudging them along and kind of being there with them. But he's not attending to his own work. And that's contrasted in the next scene with Nat, where she's, she's keeping herself afloat in grief by working a lot, by keeping that channel active mm-hmm. so that they can check in. But they both are a lot less okay Mm-hmm. I keep I keep wanting to say Natalie. Uh, you just Nat- made her into a just a just completely different name. <laughs> I don't know. Um, we get to Natasha and the just the visuals in that that opening scene with her. My favorite thing they did there was have it so that she never dyed her hair again. Yeah, she's definitely unkempt. Blonde, short blonde hair in in Infinity War. And then that hair is down, you know, maybe seven or eight inches lower and, and her natural red hair is back. And, and so she's talking to the people. She's still doing the work. She, she, she never took, took a breath. She's the one keeping the team together. Mm-hmm. And like you said, she, that, that telling line, this channel is active. This channel is always open. Always active. It's always active. I'm going to come. I'm going to eat my sandwich at my desk sad sandwich but so so she's dealing with her grief by throwing herself into work which is another classic way of 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 processing and we see that in our work as pastors where one of the most amazing things that happens when uh when people are are going through loss is the ability to plan a funeral it gives Mm. them something to do something to do is something productive and i always tell people when they're in that situation that the hardest day is the one after the funeral mm-hmm. because now you don't know what to do. You don't have a, you don't have a roadmap. You've had a roadmap from the moment they died, which was obviously incredibly painful. And yet at that time you had things to do. You had to, to talk to the, you know, a state attorney, you had to talk to the funeral home. You had to talk to the pastor. You had to do Caterer this, that and flowers yeah. and calling relatives. And then there's the next day. And, and so N- 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 Natasha hasn't, gotten to that day yet she she threw herself into work we assume that's kind of the what what they're telling us with the visuals threw herself into the work she and and she's still there she never really came up for air and so when steve comes to talk to her they have a little heart to heart and they both realize that they've been trying to deal with their grief in certain ways and that neither of them is satisfied in that well, then you have the miraculous reappearance of Ant-Man. <laughs> Is he the next scene? He's probably the next big beat because he doesn't have that accumulated grief. Yeah, it's been Wait, five hours for him, right? He's kind of like the audience's avatar in a way because he's wandering around looking at this mm. discre- destruction and devastation and those memorials with the vanished, with fresh eyes. I like that idea that he's uh, he's us. I really, I did identify with him a lot because... Um, you don't see at the end of Infinity War, you don't really see a lot of the results. You get a little bit hint of the wider chaos in the post-credit scene with Nick Fury um, mm, and all mm-hmm, the, the mm-hmm. helicopter crashing into the building. But through him, you see the the devastation and then the kind of rebuilding a little bit with with making those memorials. And I wonder if it's because he's not exhausted as much that he's able to get some fresh perspective. Mm-hmm. Um Mm-hmm. Having traveled through the quantum realm kind of gives them an idea that the time heist could happen, but just the fact that he has any energy for it, everyone else is so beaten down and exhausted mm. um, from having fought this battle for five years that I, I think his 
sort of fresh energy is what helps catalyze them after that. Yeah, because one thing that grief can do is to um, narrow your field of vision. Uh, can really kind of you can put yourself in a box. You make your world a lot smaller, mm. and that's what happens with Iron Man. So they go to see Tony Stark, and and that's his his reaction to grief is to 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 narrow his focus, right? Yeah, he's, he's very now, secluded yeah. in that cabin with right. his with his family. That's all his focus is on. Yeah. And, and earlier on when he comes back and he's all emaciated with, um, Mm. with the blue meanie, uh, Nebula, um, played by Karen Gillan, who I love so much. Is that Karen? That's what who's under that. (laughs) That's Amelia Pond from Dr. Who. Oh my gosh. Mind blown. (laughs) Yeah. I have to revisit a lot of thoughts I have. Anyway, but but what does he say when he sees Pepper and he's immediately, you know, just overjoyed to see Pepper, but then the first words out of his head is my kid. I lost the kid. And Peter's been a surrogate son for him for a couple of years now. Um and then now that he has Morgan, you know, little four year old Morgan, (sighs) that's his whole world. That's his whole world. I've got my second chance right here, he says. Right. Yeah, so a lot of his dialogue is about that. Yeah, I'm, 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 I've got my, yeah, this is my world now. I'm not at Avengers headquarters. I'm not at my tower in New York. I'm not at my pad, my bachelor pad in Los Angeles. I'm, I'm at the house on the lake, and that's all I need. But what's so interesting about that is it seems like he is completely starting over with them. But the first way we meet Morgan is with Pepper's kind of Iron Man-esque mask over her head which I think is foreshadowing when Pepper joins the final battle. And when the party leaves and he's told them it's impossible, suddenly, you know, he's in this rustic cabin, all that natural wood. It's very, (laughs) very fancy, but the tech comes out and he's talking to the computer. He's trying to make it work again. So right under the surface of this new life he's discovered is that old life. And then Pepper, when he has the conversation with Pepper after he figures out, very easily figures out time travel. Um, but then they have the talk and he says, you know, I could, I figured it out, but I could throw it in a box. I could throw it in the lake. And then Mm. Pepper says, but would you be able to rest? Mm -hmm. You know, she knows who he really is. And even though he is still an authentic version of Tony in his new, um, uh, smaller life, not a bad life. It's just, it's just not the same life he had. He realizes that he still has one more thing he needs to do. And I think of all the characters that we meet who are grieving during this, Tony's gone the farthest in a way mm. because he has, but he also didn't lose as much because he, he still has Pepper. It seems like everybody else lost like the main person for them. That's right. Right. Um, but he still has, but, but he still has that old drive that he's had ever since the first Iron Man movie. And then um, when he comes up to the uh, Avengers headquarters um, and they decide to, to go ahead and, and try the time heist, um, he says, keep what I found at all costs. And then when they're going to do the snap, it's five years have passed. We're not changing anything about the last five years. They're just coming back to the present. Yep. We're not going back in time and de- essentially deleting Morgan, right? That's the exactly. question mm-hmm. becomes, oh, I guess all the people who would have been born in the five years afterwards 
become boiled down into this one enchanting child mm -hmm. where at least I as an audience member was like, you better not delete this girl. Yeah. yeah. I will find you and I will have a lot of words. You love her 3000. <laughs> I love her 9 billion. She's amazing. <laughs> She's going to be, uh, oh, I got to make a movie about her one day. Yeah. She's, right. Give her 10 years or so. 15 um, years? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so we have, so let's just recap where we've been so far. We have oh, yeah, yeah. Captain America. Act one. Yeah. So Captain America uh, is, is his response to grief is to bring people together and try to help other people with their grief. An admirable thing, but he's mm -hmm. not really dealing with his own. Then we have Black Widow who threw herself into the job. And there's another great line with, with Black Widow, which, which is, you know, there's this earthquake and she says, how are we handling it? Oh, yeah. And the no-nonsense Okoye says, it's an earthquake. We handle it by not handling it. Not handling it. it. So she's, she's almost overcome with the desire yeah. to just do and fix and yeah, be. Over-functioning. Yeah, o way over-functioning. Can't stop or else if she stops. Right? It'll hit. And then we have, um, and then we have, we, we have uh, Iron Man, who we just talked about, who um, has shrunk his world down to Morgan and to Pepper and said, this is my life now. Yeah. And then we meet the Hulk quickly here. The Hulk, I think, has the least amount to do. He's with, very with much grieving. in the acceptance. He's, he's made, it's almost like he's made peace with himself and everything else is kind of, that was maybe a harder challenge to come mm. to terms with who he is. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's almost like the grieving, grieving all, all of what is lost is almost a sidebar. Yeah. And for him it was, and he says it was worse for me because he lost twice once as the Hulk and once as Banner. Mm. And, and so I, I see his grief as propelling him into the path of self-improvement. And he, and that's another really, um, common response to grief. You know, somebody, somebody dies and you need to, you realize that life is short mm -hmm. and, what am I going to do with my life? I'm going to, I'm going to improve this. They, they would, they would want you to live. You know, you hear that a right. lot. Um, and that's, that's where the Hulk comes in. And then, Ooh, we get Hawkeye. Yeah. So yeah. I, I read an article that this is, you can probably Google this about like the stages of grief, those kind of um, it's not, it's a little hokey, but you know, the denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, um, which we don't move with different stages of grief. We don't move through them sequentially, which gives it a, makes it seem like we do, but they were pairing each character with them with a mm -hmm. stage of grief. And Hawkeye is the anger clearly yes. turning vigilante and just wreaking havoc. Hawkeye is the, is the epitome of that response to grief, which is the grief being um, it's a response of unfairness, unfairness at the world how could you take this away from me? It's interesting later when Nat is talking to him about the possibility of going back and he says, don't give me hope mm -hmm. because in his case, even a little glimmer of hope is almost too painful. He's gone too far into that, into that anger. The flip side of hope is that it might not happen. And then the grief is doubled. And uh, to open the movie with Hawkeye's family being dusted that's right. Is just that's that's when the audience starts grieving. We we as the audience start grieving in the first forty five seconds of this film before the any credits roll at all, and for Hawkeye to lose all four of his family members, that is unfair. I is, mean, statistically is unfair. Yeah. unfair. Um, and 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 so yeah, when when Natalie comes to get him, 
Um, you did you, you it again. Were, did I say Natalie again? <laughs> you did. Where is this coming from? Her name is not Natalie, Natalie Portman. Who I does have no show up idea. In this movie, She's in that movie for like four seconds. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't know why I keep saying Natalie. <laughs> Sorry. Oh my gosh. Okay. Uh, we can we can make a note in case I oh miss miss your slip up again. Gracious. Um, <laughs> Yeah, when when Natasha comes to get him, she witnesses the end of his killing spree in Japan, where the uh, the the cartel boss or whatever he is in in Japan, the mob boss, uh, is wondering what why are you doing this? And and Barton says, "You survived. They got Thanos. You get me." In other words, the wrong fifty percent of people were snapped away. Right. And then. Uh, the quarry tries to bargain with him and he says, what you, what I want, you can't give me. And we know of course what he wants. Um, and that's why when Natasha gives him hope, mm-hmm. even a, even a fraction of hope, he says, no, no, I can't, I can't entertain that. My life is much. this now. Yeah. And that and brings us to the most, well, the my most favorite, obvious, yeah. most visually startling form of grief. Indeed. Our, our, let's our talk friend about, Thor. Let's talk about Thor. I was amazed at Chris Hemsworth's portrayal in this in this movie. I, I read some articles when it first came out where people were like, oh, Thor's being played for laughed. It's just hokey. It's this or that. Oh my gosh, really? And, and I thought to myself, wow, you really missed the point. Yeah, he does a phenomenal <laughs> job. Role. Yes. Uh, because Thor is uh, the the reaction of grieving, which is saying i'm fine i'm, I'm ignoring fine. it I'm, push fine. It down. I'm ignoring it pushing it down i'm ignoring it and then it starts coming out sideways you said earlier about one of the responses to grief is to just push it down never yep. acknowledge it i'm fine i'm okay and that's exactly what thor's doing except it is coming out in all of these kind of weird ways yeah he's getting angry at noob master 69 playing fortnite and so, yeah, and so his his world has also shrunk in a similar way that Iron Man's has, but Tony chose that. Yeah. Right. For Thor, it's almost like he he sunk into it, just like mm-hmm. his beer gut grows. Um, the, and those three things that happen in a row show just how much he has fallen. One is yelling at New Master sixty nine. The other is the cable's broken and he can't get it fixed. And then the straw that breaks the camel's back is opening up a beer With on Stormbreaker. Um, it's just horrible. <laughs> and and I think it's interesting in that in that scene to see how quickly it breaks. Like he's saying, "Yes, I'm fine." Like, why wouldn't I be? And his, um, you know, like, why would I? They mentioned the name Thanos, and um, his friend it was like Nick and Korg are like, "We don't we don't say that name in this house. We we can't even mention it. Don't look." It's like there's a whole section of their vision where they're just don't look over there. It's too scary to look. Mm, um, he's mm-hmm. like, why would I be scared of that guy? I killed that guy. I, I him, defeated yeah. him. But that's not the point. You'll, he's still lost to him. And it's, it's too frightening to even look at. Kind of like the hope with Hawkeye. Mm, for him, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. the loss, it's the failure that is too great. He sees it as his fault for not going for the, not going for the head. And there's a wonderful visual at the end of the scene where he actually, when he does go for the head in that Pyrrhic victory, when he slices Mm -hmm. Dennis's head off after it doesn't matter. And then as he's walking away, we have a fade 
as Thor is walking away, you, you see the back of Thor and it going out of focus. And it's like, that's what's um, happening to the character. He's like disassociating and losing focus on himself. Mm-hmm, kind of. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And then, and then uh, Thor has lost so much. He's lost his family. He's lost half his people. He's mm-hmm. lost his, his home. And then, so now we're back and we're on earth and we have the remnant, basically the remnant of the Asgardians. Valkyrie. She is doing, um, She's also grieving in a way, but in a productive rebuilding type of a way. When we first meet Valkyrie, she is the drunk that Thor is in Endgame. That's right. It's a and so she's there. already done that. She has she's been there. It. She's She has overcome that part of herself. And so when we see her in this movie, she mm. has she's in a, a further stage of where Thor is now because she's still grieving the fact that her... Uh, the the Valkyries mm-hmm. were destroyed, you know, centuries ago, millennia ago, in that battle with Hela. I think I'm a little fuzzy on Ragnarok. Um, so she's been there, right? Uh, but she's she's much she's grown, and uh, which is why when she gets the mantle of leadership at the end, it's so satisfying. It is, it is very satisfying because she can kind of show them the way. You said earlier about Thor purposefully ignoring his grief right. and, and putting up this barrier to, and, and almost rewriting what happened. Rewriting history. Yeah. I, why would I be scared of that guy? Uh, and, and so we've got all of these different responses to grief, uh, helping other people and maybe not dealing with your own, throwing yourself into work, uh, shrinking your world down to a manageable level, raging at the unfairness of the world, the path of self-improvement, and then dealing by not dealing. Mm-hmm. Right. I did those a little out of order, but that's oh, all of yeah. those responses are present. And then we move into the time heist and we see, we start to get a whole nother stage of this. And I wonder a little bit as an audience member, that was a relief to move into the second act because there is that renewed energy and purpose. I also always love a good getting the team together montage. <laughs> that's my sure. favorite type of montage. I'll watch, I'll make a man out of you from Mulan all day because I just love that stuff. But the as an audience member experiencing this grief secondhand through the characters and even though we knew Spider-Man Homecoming was coming out and so Peter Parker's probably not actually dead, which undercut it a little bit, you still grieve the characters that you've lost and not having them in the movie. So having act two full of purpose and vigor and hope gives the audience a break too. You're Mm, back to what mm -hmm. these movies are about, which is doing something amazing. Not that grieving isn't amazing, but that's not, you're right. That's not what we look for in a Marvel movie typically. Yeah. And then, so during the time heist, the best parts of the time heist are when we actually pause and we revisit the grief because the action is fun. You know, Captain America beating himself up is great. You know, there's lots of callbacks to the earlier movies, which are wonderful, but it's those moments when Thor talks to his mom, when mm-hmm. Tony talks to his dad. I also felt, also again, maybe a little bit meta as an audience member revisiting those moments. So my favorite part of the time high sequence was revisiting that scene with Peter Quill, where he's listening to the greatest playlist ever, an awesome mix, and he's dancing around, he's kicking those little rats around and then to see it from the outside and to be like, wow, so he's an idiot, isn't he? Yeah. Rody um, has the great line there. Yeah. yeah. 
that um, that as an audience member who has been with these movies for mm, 15 years, have they been, how long have they been coming? No, that's uh, too long. 10. 10 yeah, years. 10 years. For quite yeah. a long time, traveling with these characters and these stories, it was a bit of a, not like grief, like I've lost someone who's died, but kind of ending an era and realizing, mm-hmm. you know, it's okay to make fun of the earlier ones and the, the way we've been, the who we are. And then moving forward, um, there was, when it got meta in the middle, I thought that was really appropriate hmm. as it ends this era of Marvel movies. During the time high sequence with those relationships that we just mentioned, we see a wish fulfillment of a very common response to grief, which is, I wish I had one more conversation with the person I've lost. And I think that if if we were able to have that, it could be so healing and you see that, especially, I think, actually in two of them, um, Thor with his mother, with Frigga, and then Tony with his father. So Thor goes back on the day that his mother is supposed to die, and he gets to see himself through her eyes, which I think is through her, the acceptance and love she has for him. She notices that he's not himself. She says, you know, like, obviously, she knows she's, he's from the future and that the future hasn't been kind to him, mm-hmm. but he's able to have her lens, the way she sees him kind of overlaid over all the muck and crud he's been through. And then to have that one moment calling the hammer and realizing I'm still worthy. And the question is, what is he worthy of? And it's what his mother says. Everyone fails at who they're supposed to be. Just be who you are. You're not going to fail at who you are. And it's that, that's what makes you worthy. That's why you can call the hammer to you is being who you actually are. Not, not all the expectations of your father or of Asgard or whatever. And yeah, she has, Renee Russo just has this incredible compassion. The, the actress just, just exudes compassion in that scene. Even, even as she tells him to eat a salad. Yeah. Oh God, that was so great. (laughs) Okay. So I guess two, two kind of poles, one, you're worthy, but please take care of yourself, hon. Yeah. Go eat a salad. And I love that he has a panic attack. Again, it's, it's sort of, it's supposed to be a funny moment, but you see through the kind of, there's the laughter you have around the Thor character during these scenes is a little bit hollow because you're mm-hmm. recognizing just how, how in pain he is. And then when he has the panic attack, you think, wow, they actually went there. You know, that the Thor, you know, the, the God of thunder could be feeling this deeply to, to go into this, this, uh, this place of, of anxiety. Well, and we see a bit of that vulnerability with Tony later when they go back to, and he gets some amount of closure with his father. So I mean, his father's dead in the current timeline, so there's a, a loss there. But I don't think he's necessarily been grieving the loss, like his father's death, but more the loss of that potential relationship. There's a lot of pressure between in the, on their relationship, and he's able to go back and kind of mentor his father about you know fatherhood in a way that's healing for him as well. And just to know that his dad loves him deeply. Mm-hmm. You know, he's brand new and, and I, there's still nothing I wouldn't do for him. Uh, it's a really beautiful moment. Well, again, it's something that you don't think to look for in a Marvel movie, but I'm so glad they went there. Because when you do, when you have time travel, you do get to do the impossible. You get to have conversations with those who are gone or who, in this case, he didn't, his father didn't recognize him. 
he gets a certain level of vulnerability and honesty with a total stranger that he as his son would never have gotten. Later on, we get that little mini interlude of grief with Clint and Natasha in de- deciding who will die. Uh, it was such a heart-wrenching scene to watch these two friends fighting over who, is, who lives and who dies and who gets sacrificed for this greater good. Yeah, and Clint wants to be the sacrifice because if his family comes back, he doesn't think that he can look them in the eye after all the things he's done in the last five years. And Natasha wants to be the sacrifice because it's, it's like the end of her dedication to this family. Mm-hmm. And it's the, it's the ultimate thing that she can do that says, I love you to all of these people who have been her adopted family for so long. So this is her pinnacle of all the things she's worked for. It's making this happen. Act two basically ends with Clint and Natasha with that scene that we're just talking about. And act three begins with them all coming back successful with the infinity stones and they make the glove and so forth. And we have the big fight and we have Tony's death. And then we have our grief all coming full circle in a ritual at the end of the film. We talked earlier about funerals being these beautiful things that help us to kind of stretch out that first period of intense pain. Um, and we get this ritual with all of them and, the, and putting the thing in the, the Tony's old heart in the lake. Um, and then we see the pan through all the characters that Tony Stark has touched as being the first hero in this MCU. That's another meta another meta scene. And so we, with, with that ritual, we also, as an audience, get to grieve, as you said before, the, the, the closure of this section of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So we see in that funeral scene or that ritual scene is something that I see a lot in funerals, which is that the ritual becomes a safe container for very difficult or complicated feelings. Earlier on, when the loss of Natasha is so raw, uh, in that moment, the Hulk picks up a bench and chucks it across the lake. We have this this raw moment of of emotion from the Hulk where where we get the old Hulk for just a second. And then we have Clint and Scarlet Witch. Right by the lake sitting, again. Sitting by the lake again and just having a quick, very quiet moment with each other because they've lost Vision and Black Widow. And just saying to each other, yeah, I know. I remember leaving the film and saying, okay, they had a funeral for Tony, but what about everybody else? He is, in a sense, representative of all that is lost in that final battle and in everything that happened before. And I think in checking in with Clint and Scarlet, which by the lake, it shows that they have this, they've, un, they've reversed the snap, everyone's come back, but things are still messy things have still been disruptive. Um, There's still lost people. Um, Think about all the planes that crashed, not because people were dusted, but because the pilot was dusted. Uh, Those people aren't coming back. And they, in those, in that moment, those two kind of represent all that messiness. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And then what do we make of Cap's final sitting by the lake again? Yeah. There's something just so fulfilling and cathartic about Cap's decision to live the life with with Peggy Carter. And not tell them about it. He's able to finally have, as a public figure, to finally have some something that he can keep to himself. What I think 
this movie continues to teach me is to hold other people's grief lightly, not mm-hmm. to judge them for it, but to say you're you are doing what you need to do and let me walk alongside you in that. Together we're going to we're going to move towards some new future. That makes a lot of sense to me. It's one of the reasons we almost picked the scene from for our scripture quote instead of John, we almost picked Job when mm-hmm. his friends are sitting with him before they open their mouths and ruin their support of him. But their initial response to his grief is to sit with him in quiet and just be there with him in his pain, not try to say anything or fix it. And they do that for a whole week. Yeah. And then they open their mouths and ruin it. But they tried. Um, And that's, I think, the call that we all have is to be with each other's grief, to honor it because it's, it's holy. It means that there was love. There is continuing love. If there was no love, there wouldn't be grief. Um, and to walk with people in it, maybe kind of taking uh, Captain America as a bit of our model and his support group role of just listening and being with people and not not seeing it as a process that has to be gone through of boxes to check, but as you know, a very holy walk that we do with ourselves and with other people and with God ultimately. Our book group returns for season two with Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Here's a quick recap of chapters one through three. Chapter one, the worst birthday. Our story begins on Harry's 12th birthday, but Uncle Vernon knows it only as sell a lot of drills day as a client is coming for dinner. Harry spends the first several pages in reverie, reminding us of the plot of book one. Then we learn Harry's marching orders. During dinner, Harry is to be up in his room, making no noise and pretending he's not there. Such a banishment serves only to further Harry's isolation. He hasn't received a single missive from Ron or Hermione, and he thought they were his best friends. Also, there are eyes peering at him from the garden hedge, but that's probably nothing, right? Chapter 2, Dobby's Warning It is not nothing. The eyes in the hedge belong to Dobby the house elf, who wears a pillowcase for clothes and who is bound to serve a certain family for life. The author studiously avoids the word slavery, but that's what it is. Dobby even has to punish himself for saying a word against his slavers or for crossing their commands. But Dobby has risked shutting his ears in the oven door to bring Harry a message. He must not go back to Hogwarts. Something bad is going to happen at the school this year, and Dobby wants to keep Harry safe. Dobby wants it so badly that the house elf uses his magic to ruin the dinner downstairs, knowing that such an event would likely ground Harry for good. Speaking of grounding, that is just what Dobby does with the prize pudding after casting a hover charm on it. The dinner could be salvaged, that is, until a barn owl swoops through the window, causing the female dinner guest to scream in Hitchcockian peril. The dinner destroyed, Uncle Vernon imprisons Harry in his room, puts bars on the window and a flap on the door for the passage of meager meals. Uncle Vernon feels safe in doing so, because he now knows that Harry is not allowed to do magic outside of school. But after a few days of confinement, Harry wakes to find his best friend flying just outside the barred window. Chapter 3, The Burrow 
Fred, George, and Ron bust Harry out of number four Privet Drive with the help of their father's flying car. For some reason, Uncle Vernon is angry that Harry will be gone. And we leave the Dursleys gawking out Harry's recently debarred bedroom window. The three Weasleys and Harry fly overnight across the country and land in front of a ramshackle and decidedly magical house surrounded by a large, untidy garden. Mrs. Weasley is waiting to read her son's The Riot Act, and the presence of Harry only marginally softens her. The boys eat a sullen breakfast before going to denome the garden, but they won't take any advice from a guide by a Mr. Lockhart. Mr. Weasley comes home after a long night of raids in his capacity as a member of the Misuse of Muggle Artifacts Office of the Ministry of Magic. Mr. Weasley wants to know how well the car ran, but he joins his wife in reprimanding the boys instead. Harry and Ron retire to Ron's room, and we get just a glimpse of Ginny Weasley peeking through the crack in her door. It was good to reread this book so far because I have to admit, I have seen this movie maybe 50 or 60 times. I'm not even kidding. Wow, that's a lot of times. So if I slip up and sometimes quote the movie version, I'm sorry. My memory is fallible. <laughs> Say it isn't so, Carrie. No, but all I can think of is that was very wrong indeed, boys. Very mm. wrong. How did it okay. go? <laughs> what exactly is the function of a rubber duck? <laughs> the opening chapters introduce a thing that's going to happen in the next five books, which is that we're going to reorient with Harry back in his normal world after whatever wild events have happened the previous year. And we're also going to slip in a lot of recap for the audience who might not remember the exact plot of the previous book. So there's a lot of recapping in these early chapters about who is Harry? What does he look like? Why is he living with these awful people? Why does he go to a school for magic? Um, and so it reorients us to remind um, to the plot and to Harry himself. Chapter one really feels like a paring down of Harry's life all the way to himself alone, all by himself. He is the only person in existence as the Dursleys have shut off all avenues of communication for him. He doesn't even get to hang out with Hedwig. Yeah, it's so sad. So what we see is Harry fully isolated. Yeah. Uh, and isolation is one of the worst things that can happen to a human being. A, and, and, and from two different perspectives, when you are the one being isolated by others, you can start to think, oh, what did I do wrong? Why, why what's wrong with me that I should be like this? Um, even if it's the outside world that's wrong, it, it doesn't necessarily feel like that. The other type of isolation would be you isolating yourself in order to make, uh, to make judgments about other people. Uh, and Harry is in that first, the first category. Yeah, it's a very abusive situation. I mean, it's horrible. Yeah. It's absolutely horrible. The Dursleys call magic, uh, Harry's magic, an abnormality. This goes back to the early chapters in book one, where normal is anything that the Dursleys are. Like, yeah. Yeah. And abnormal is anything that isn't like that. And, and that just shows the bias uh, continued bias of, of remember, we also said that the magical world is very biased as well against muggles, oh, sure. which is why when we introduced Mr. Weasley, it's, it's such a fun moment of a, of a magical person appreciating 
muggle ingenuity. Right. Instead of just writing it off completely. And I, th- I think in the Dursleys calling magic abnormal, essentially they're calling Harry abnormal because he is magic. That's part of who he is. And that part of book one's overall discovery of identity theme is that him and the magic world are so inextricably tied that when opening up chapter uh, book two, chapter one, with him being cut off from the magical world, cut off from the relationships he built, the identity he forged, the understanding and family connection he found is like cutting him off in a way. It's diminishing him. And mm-hmm. even to the point where to fit into their perfect suburban British lifestyle, they ask him to pretend to not exist, that he his very presence is, is to be negated in order for them to make this big drill deal. And it's, it's stated specifically that the Dursleys uh, feel the sense of deepest shame to have a wizard in the family. Well, to compound the tragedy, I think, of Harry's situation, we get Dobby, who actually makes his situation look almost decent by comparison because Dobby is in such abject, such an abject, wretched place. Um, he's not able to wear clothes. He's literally owned by a family. He is enslaved. Um, he's never been to even the idea of being treated like an equal causes him to break down in gasping sobs. He's never been extended the slightest courtesy. And it ends up because he's with the certain family that he's with. Um, he's with Which the Malfoys. We don't know, and we don't know that We don't yet. know this yeah. at, the point, at the book, but we all know. We can guess, the Malfoys. Yeah. But even when you see other house elves later, they're not treated especially well either. I mean, the Malfoys might be particularly awful but their state is still wretched. Right. And, and even Molly Weasley in chapter three longs for a house elf. Right. It's just a normal thing in the, in the wizarding world. Uh, so, so enslavement has the, the, has become so normalized in this magical world that yeah. it doesn't seem to be a problem. It's a commodity. She wants a house elf, just like, you know, I might want a better washing machine. Right. And that's how they see house elves. Yeah. But which is why it's so wonderful to see, it, in, the, in chapter one, if Harry is being diminished and isolated and not like himself, to see in chapter two, his heart return and you see that his instinct is to empathize and help Dobby. He immediately wants to have him sit down, be polite, um, and to help him. How can I help you? Yeah, it also shows that Harry hasn't grown up in the soup of the magical uh, culture that allows for house self enslavement yeah that, that harry is outside of that system was ne- never learned to see house elves as such inferiors that they would naturally desire to be in bondage and obviously right. there's there's some uh, overtones of of uh, real world slavery in this and we'll have a lot more to say about that in book four, book I'm four. sure. Yes, yeah. we will. Um, but that Harry doesn't doesn't have that baggage. Uh, that whole culture isn't there. Mm. And so, yeah, he treats Dobby like he would treat anybody else. Yeah, which is a kind, he's a kind-hearted person. I, I know we can rag on him sometimes, but ultimately his books about are about his heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sometimes he goes away from that and uh, we see him start to unravel a little bit when he isn't yeah. being his truest self. In chapter three... I love the little detail that um, Fred and George really have a lot of their father in them. I love that these 14 or so year old boys go to run and greet their father after he comes home from work. Yeah, isn't that nice? How sweet is that? George picks Harry's lock. 
Oh, sorry. You meant about that. Yeah. They've got well, a lot too, of, yeah. sorry. Yeah. I was I just mean, thinking that they love him, but well, they love him. Yeah. They, they have definitely love his him. skills too. Yeah. They also, but they, but we see them loving him both by running up and hugging him, but also mm-hmm. the fact that they, they have been watching him. Yeah. They've, you learned. Know, they've learned some stuff about muggles from him. They have, and I think they've taken it a step further. So I don't yeah. think Arthur Weasley would be able to successfully pick a lock. Oh no, not at all. But no, just no. the fact that yeah, he they're open to it. Open to muggle ingenuity. And and they are smart enough to take those skills and apply them, realizing they have to get away around the statute of secrecy somehow. Or the sorry, um, miss the age limitation. So answer me this, Carrie. Why does Vernon Dursley care that Harry is getting away? I don't know. And why does he care if he, I mean, I guess he, he wants to make Harry miserable. But, but, but he's miserable <sighs> trying to make Harry miserable. Isn't, isn't I guess that's that sort of how it works wise? though, isn't it? Yeah, I think that is very <laughs> telling. It's like, I, I don't want to be, I don't want you to be happy. And so in the meantime, I'll make myself miserable just so I know that you're miserable too. Yeah, that does sound pretty normal. Like, is it, um, <laughs> I think it's in the fourth book when they send, when the Weasleys send the letter about inviting him to the Quidditch World Cup. And Vernon's like, on the one hand, you can see the cogs working under his brain and it says something like that. Like, on the one hand, it would make Harry happy and Vernon, like, hates seeing Harry happy. On the other hand, it would get him out of the house. So I wonder if he's flashing back to this where he's like, well, you know, he escaped my clutches, but also it was great not having him around for the rest of the summer. They're they're miserable people and you really see just how terribly unpleasant the Dursleys are in these chapters. Like their dinner party sounds like the last place in the world I'd want to be. Yeah. The Japanese golfer jokes and Petunia's shrill false laughter. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's go back to the Weasleys though. They're great. I do always love the burrow scenes because they're so vibrant. They're like the Hogwarts scenes. All the magic leaps off the page and, and the movie, the movie scene is very good. <laughs> if you're watching it um, because of the way they weave in some of the subtle magic that just happens in a, a home that's permeated by it. I also think there's something beautiful about Harry's acceptance of what Ron is embarrassed about. Oh um, yeah. They're, they're yeah. sort of poverty, you know, Ron's poverty and Harry's relative wealth um, and that awkwardness in their friendship of Ron's showing him something of himself and hoping it's not going to be rejected by this, this boy who had a, you know, he's like, you had a pretty big bedroom back at the muggles house. And it's like, but that was miserable. Um, this is the best, you know, Harry's like, this is the best house I've ever been in. Um, it's such a affirmation of, of the goodness of their friendship. Yeah. Isn't it so true though, when, when you make a friend and you, you just so want that friend to accept who you really are. Mm-hmm. And you're not used to showing people who you really truly are. And so the mark of true friendship is being able to take your masks off in front of people. Right. And show, and them, show them around your house. Yeah. And that's what Ron's doing here. Maybe we finish up today with just that great line from Mr. Weasley when he says, bless them. Muggles go to any length to ignore magic. The podcast for Nerdy Christian Book Club will resume next time with chapters four through six of the Chamber of Secrets. That's At Flourish and Blots, The Whomping Willow, and Gilderoy Lockhart. We'll see you then.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians, and on Twitter at nerdychristians. You can find me on Twitter at Rev Adam Thomas or on my website, wherethewind.com. That's W-H-E-R-E, thewind.com. Just had a new fantasy novel come out, The Islands of Shattered Glass. You can find that on Amazon. And you can find both Carrie and me right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. If there is an ache in your heart or a slowness to your steps, anger for what's been lost, or disbelief for what's come to pass, know this. God is with you, walking beside you on this path, urging you on to do the hardest part. Take the jump. Take those brave little baby steps to try and become whole again, to find purpose. The blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is with you this day and always. Amen. Amen.